Let's open our Bibles to the book of Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, chapter 2. Are we ready to go, sound booth people? There we are, Song of Solomon. And um, we made a number of comments there on the book. We gave you an outline last, last Wednesday of the, uh, the whole book. And uh, we also went through chapter 1. Remember that the narrative changes back and forth. It's like a ping-pong ball or something. Back and forth it goes. <clears throat> um, there we are. We're going to look at chapter 2 tonight. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, this is an amazing uh, book of the Bible, the Song of Solomon. And uh, there's just so many ways, things we can find in it and applications we can make. Uh, please speak with our hearts tonight. Our Father, we know that you know all there is to know about us. And our hearts, our lives, in fact, are an open book before you and nothing can be hidden and that's good that's the way it ought to be father help us to grow and improve in our relationship with you our love for you please have the holy spirit use our study tonight to root us and ground us that much more in your love holy spirit of god be our bible teacher tonight please in jesus name we ask amen well, we're uh, going to look at chapter 2, and I have for you a, um, uh, a bit of an outline here. Now, remember that I made comment that the primary application appears to be Solomon and his bride, and they seem to do most of the conversation. There's a little bit, uh, a couple of others that, that chime in there, some, some ladies chime in, and um, the bride's brothers have a word to say and so on. But essentially, it's between Solomon and his bride, the Shulamite. Uh, however, as I mentioned, most conservative scholars seem to believe that it goes beyond that, and they look to the relationship that exists between God and his people. And uh, that was true uh, with uh, the Old Testament. It's true with the New Testament. And so in our outline, rather than say Solomon or the Shulamite, I'm just going to put God in Israel. Um, so we have, um, we're going to go through it. Uh, um, bum, 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 bum. No, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll just give you the, uh, the outline first, then we'll go back and we'll, uh, we'll look at it. So we have God speaking, first two verses, then we have Israel. Uh, verses 3 to 9, then we have God speaking in verses 10 to 15, and then Israel 16 to 17, but notice, to be continued, because um, uh, the Shulamite continues her speech into chapter 3, and we're only going as far as chapter 2 here. So let's look at this together. Um, now, I need to point out right away uh, something I, I, I said last week. I need to say it again, is that there's a lot of different commentaries, 
different people have a lot of different things to say about the Song of Solomon. And um, the more that I'm reading what others have to say, the more I'm amazed the diversity. Uh, as I mentioned, there's hundreds of books been written, and I've not read them all, but uh, boy, I've seen uh, a lot of diversity, and I continue to see it as I continue my studies through it. But uh, some think that verse 1 is uh, Solomon's bride speaking. Uh, and they have their reasons for that. Uh, others feel that it's uh, Solomon himself uh, doing the speaking in verse 1. I am I'm of that persuasion. I think that it's uh, Solomon speaking. And so Solomon begins the conversation here, uh, essentially introducing himself and his bride. And so verse 1, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Um, so Solomon here is comparing himself to a rose in a place called Sharon. Now, let's see if I have this. Here we go. Look at that. I've got for you what I think is this uh, plain of Sharon up here. You all recognize this map of Israel, I'm sure, Mediterranean Sea. Uh, Mrs. White and I, we, uh, we landed uh, in Tel Aviv, should be over here somewhere. And then we traveled up and around and down and over here to Jerusalem and back to Tel Aviv. And it was a quite, quite an experience. If you ever have an opportunity to visit the Holy Land, uh, you ought to consider doing it. Um, anyhow, this area here can, is considered to be the, uh, the plain, if you will, of, of Sharon. This is lowland here, and as you get uh, up here, there's this ridge of mountains that runs north and south, and a lot of people would travel this ridge uh, to get to where they're going. Um, a lot of cities were um, in along that, that area essentially up around in here. You'd have to see a better map than this. But all this basically is very lowlands, right, right all around here. And um, apparently very fertile. As I understand, the um, uh, area here known as uh, uh, Sharon, um, it was a, a bountiful pasture uh, in the time of King David and Solomon. And so here he is likening himself to this uh, rose of Sharon and, he says, the lily of the valleys. Now, uh, the lily of, of, of the valley uh, would have been the valley probably in that Sharon area as well. And, of course, the lily is, uh, tends to be a symbol of sweetness and, and purity. Now, together, if you think of it, the rose and the lily... Keep that in mind and turn over a page and go to chapter 5 and verse 10. And this is um, the bride, the Shulamite speaking. My beloved is white and ruddy. See that? So you get both colors right there, the white and the red, uh, the chiefest among 10,000. So you go back to chapter 2, verse 1. And Solomon is introducing himself here as the Rose of Sharon and the Lily of the Valley. He's the Lily of the Valley. You know that song? Yeah. yeah. Well, this is where it comes from. Uh, so it's a reference to, to Christ, which again uh, seems to um, authenticate the fact that the Song of Solomon goes beyond 
the uh, love of uh, a man and a woman uh, and pictures the love between God and his people. So that's, that's good to keep in mind. Verse 2, he now compares her to a lily. He says, as the lily among thorns. Look at that, thorns. So is my love among the daughters. And so if you think of it this way, uh, God looks upon, looked upon Israel as his lily among the thorns. Now, if Israel was the lily, then what do you think the thorns might be? Starts with the letter G. Gentiles, yeah, because they were essentially godless and pagan and idol worshiping and so on. And so uh, that's a, a very apt analogy. And so here, uh, Solomon uh, making the comparison with um, uh, his, his wife and the other women, it suggests that to Solomon, all the other women were to him like thorns and that she was like a lily. He figured that uh, he really found the prize. And uh, I knew a man a number of years ago back in, uh, oh, the very early 1980s. In fact, I think it was 1980. And um, this was before I was married, and I was telling him uh, my plans to be married. And he, he looked at me and he said, you know, he said, you'll never marry the perfect, the perfect girl. And then... I, I said, why? <laughs> he said, because I married her. <laughs> uh, back in the 70s, uh, there was a, uh, a Christian man. He was in full-time ministry, and he was uh, telling me about um, a time years before that, so I'm guessing this probably going back to the 50s or something. He was at a Christian camp. He said he was a young guy in the ministry, and he was at a Christian camp. Maybe it was the 40s. I think it was the 50s. He was at this Christian camp with all these couples. And he said there was this old Christian man there. And he was standing beside the old Christian man. And the, the old Christian man was telling him, the young evangelist at the time, about his wife. And uh, just what an amazing woman she, uh, she is. And um, all of a sudden... Uh, she came out of the, um, uh, the bunkhouse where they'd been staying. And uh, she came down the steps and the old guy gave, gave the young guy the elbow and, looked, and said, look, look, there she is. And the young guy looked and here's this senior Christian lady and she came down the steps and walked across this open area and I think went into the kitchen area. And he thought to himself, what's so special? What am I missing? And he turned back to the old guy and the old guy was there watching his wife and he had a tear running down his cheek. The love that he had for his wife. So you see, it's real. This kind of thing is real. And Solomon here with his Shulamite bride, he compared her to a lily and all the other women were to him, just like thorns. He had found the one. Now, I know we're talking Solomon here. I realize this, but uh, in the younger portion of his life, he just had the one wife. It was after he started to multiply to himself wives and they started turning his heart away and the guy's life really became a wreck. And uh, boy, he got involved with some stuff he shouldn't have. 
And I think near the end, he started to, you know, do a bit of a U-turn because it was near the end of his life, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes in which he's looking back on all what he's done and he's a vanity of vanities. But here this poor guy uh, uh, kind of wrecked his life. And that's not too hard to do. That's not too hard to do. A lot of people, uh, given a lot of wealth or a lot of popularity, uh, often end up ruining um, look at the wealthiest man in the world. What's his name? Does anyone know? Bezos, right? He's worth, is it $120 billion? He's far surpassed Bill Gates. He is currently the wealthiest man in the whole world today, living. Something like $110, $120 billion. He and his wife have filed for divorce. They're prophesying that his wife is going to become the richest woman in all the world. Crazy, eh? Um, you, can, you can have all this uh, wealth and all this stuff of the world, but uh, it does not guarantee you a happy life or a happy marriage. A lot of young people, when they have committed a lot of wealth, like a lot of sports people, uh, they don't know how to handle it. They don't have the character, and they blow it. A lot of uh, people, uh, actors that have hit the big time and sports people hit the big time and they come into millions and millions of dollars and before you know it, they're broke, they're bankrupt. Or they've uh, gone and uh, blown a lot of it on uh, drugs and prostitutes and things like that. And it's just so sad, sad, sad. Uh, but here, Solomon, this would be more in the uh, beginning portion of his life. I think when he was still a good guy. Well, anyhow... As I say, verses 1 and 2, there's Solomon speaking, and we can liken that to God. God saying, here I am, the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley. And then he looks upon uh, his people. That's us, folks. That's us. And he, he loves us so much that uh, all of the other people of the world, the unsaved people of the world, are nothing but thorns compared to his lily. That's us. Isn't that kind of neat, how God thinks of us? Well, let's move on now to uh, the bride. And this would be uh, in keeping with our outline. This would be Israel, uh, verses 3 to 9. Now, the bride starts praising Solomon's beauty and, in the process, reveals her consuming desire for his love. So, verse 3 she says, as the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so was my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. And so she compares Solomon to an apple tree. Wives, have you ever compared your husband to an apple tree? <laughs> I suppose we could make a few funny comments, but we won't, because this is a... <laughs> this is a loving moment here. Uh, apple, the apple tree, uh, maybe you knew this, it's the most popular tree in the world. There are more of those things growing than any other type of tree. Interesting, isn't it? Also, of course, the, uh, the apple uh, is a very healthy food. Now, what she's meaning here, I think, is that she loves him more than any other man. I think that this is why that she said what she said here in verse 3, comparing him uh, among the sons of, uh, of men there and sat down under his shadow and how sweet 
his fruit to her taste. Uh, Verse 4, he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. Well, she sees him as uh, popular and powerful, it would seem. He apparently seems to have a banqueting house, or at least there's one around. Now, a banquet, of course, is a feast of food, good food, and and good drink as well. And a banqueting house would be a great hall that can hold a lot of people for such a feast. This would be the banqueting house. But notice it says here in verse 4, "...in his banner over me was love." You know, they made those words into another Christian song, right? His banner over me is love. God loves you and I love you. And that's the way it should be. Have you ever heard that? Yes? Raise your hand if you've heard that. Raise your hand if you've heard that just for the first time tonight. Anybody not hear it at all? (laughs) Well, uh, it's been around a long time. Uh, His banner over me is love. A little Christian song. That's where it comes from. Now, a banner was uh, a piece of cloth with the king's emblem on it. And they used it, of course, to rally the troops and encourage them and so on. And so uh, here in verse 4, she's seeing him as uh, powerful and popular. Verse 5, she says, stay me with flagons. Now, flagons were large bottles used to hold uh, grape juice. That was the popular drink back then. Um, Stay me with flagons. Comfort me with apples. There are those apples again here for her comfort. Now she says, for I am sick of love. Now, that doesn't mean that she hates the love. She's fed up with the love. I'm sick of that. I want nothing more to do with it. That's not what she's saying. She's saying that uh, the mutual love that they have for each other, him for her and her for him, is so overpowering in her life that she is, she's just taken up with it. And that happens uh, when uh, two people uh, meet and there's that, that spark, right? And then all of a sudden, you know, the violins play and the world stands still and, you know, he can't see anyone else except her and she can't, she's not aware of anyone else in the whole world except him. And they just kind of float, you know, in, in their, their love for each other. And this is that sort of thing. She feels so overpowered by his love for her and her love for him. Verse 6, this is really sweet. His left hand is under my head and his right hand doth embrace me. Now, can you picture what that would look like? In your mind's eye, can you see him putting his left hand under her head and his right arm around her? And so in verse 6 here, I think she's describing his embrace, and I think it suggests the security that it gives her. And husbands, this is a great maneuver to practice on your wife. Verse 7, I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that ye stir not up nor awake my love till he please. And so she guards um, his sleep, charging the, the women to, to leave him sleep in, in peace here. Um, the rose and the hinds, these are deer-like uh, sort of uh, animals. Verse 8, um, he ta- she talks about his voice. Um, the voice of my beloved. Be- behold, he cometh leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. 
So his voice is like a healthy, vibrant, young animal. Perhaps the animals uh, of verse 9. My beloved is like a roe or a young heart. Again, these are deer-like animals, very pleasant and very uh, good-looking and very strong as well. My beloved is like a roe or a young heart. Behold, he standeth behind our wall. He looketh forth at the windows, showing himself through the lattice. And so... Um, She's about to quote what he says, and she starts in verse 10, but we're just going to say, according to our, our outline here, that verse 10, now it's Solomon speaking. Or, with our analogy, it's God. So we have God, his people, now it's back to God. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. And so he's, he's calling his bride to come and meet him, to uh, go with him and go away with him. Verse 11, for lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. Now in Israel, wintertime is more or less the rainy season. Does that remind you of any place? Wow. This is uh, Surrey. <laughs> you know, um, that's what we get. Our winters around here are rain and more rain. And sometimes a wee bit of snow. And that's, that's what we have over in Israel. And uh, a good friend of mine, uh, she's Jewish. She, um, she was born in the city of Ashdod. And uh, Ashdod, let's see. Uh, it's going to be down here somewhere. I think it's south of Gaza. That's where she was born. And she became um, a real estate agent, and she traveled around Israel a lot. But I remember her telling me some years ago, I, I met her because that, she was, uh, for me, a Hebrew teacher. <laughs> that's, how I, that's how I met her. She was offering some classes, and I went, and there was a bunch of others there learn, wanting to learn Hebrew, and that's how I got to meet her. But she told me that uh, in the wintertime uh, in Israel, it's rain, rain, rain. And so that's what you have here uh, in verse 11. The rainy winter months are over now and have given way to springtime. Verse 12 and 13 now, Solomon describes the beauty um, of spring in Israel. He says, the flowers appear on the earth. The time of the singing of birds is come and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. That would be the turtle dove, not the creepy little thing on the ground. Verse 13, the fig tree putteth forth her green figs and the vines with the tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. And so he's uh, coming to her and he's wanting her to, uh, to accompany him. Now, in verse 14, he compares her again. Um, now, we've seen this before in chapter 1 where he uh, starts making some comparisons and we're going to see more of it as we get uh, into the uh, ensuing chapters here. But uh, they both make comparisons of each other, which is really, really sweet. Um, verse 14, he says, O my dove that art in the clefts of the rock. Um, of course, we have that song, He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock, right? 
And so we have that analogy here. The clefts, of course, are the, these little indents. These, they're not huge caves, they're just small. There's two words you'll find in the King James Bible. One is cleft and the other is clift. A cleft is a, some small hole where like a small animal could go in. A clift is a much larger um, um, uh, section where a man could go in. That's what Moses did. And he went into the cleft and God passed by. But this is not a cliff, this is a cleft. So thou art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs. And you'll see that in scripture. It's an allusion to the mountains and how the rocks going up are something like stairs going up. So he's talking about uh, the, the mountainside here. He compares her to a little dove hidden in the tiny hollows of a mountainside. And he wants her to come out because he desires to see her. And look at this. Let me see thy countenance. He wants to see her. And this is interesting also. Let me hear thy voice for sweet is thy voice and thy countenance is comely. So he wants to see her. He wants to hear her voice. And now comes verse 15, and this is a famous verse as well. Take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. Now, maybe you've been following the conversation here, and he's come to her, and he wants her to go away with him, and he compares her to a little dove uh, in the clefts of the rock. And then it seems strange. All of a sudden, he's now talking about these little foxes. What in, in the world is he talking about? Why does he say this? It seems uh, like he's done a 180, or it seems that he's just all of a sudden changed his mind or changed the channel or something. And this is, this is not the same conversation, it seems. But it actually is. Um, now, foxes give birth to their young in the springtime. And they would protect their uh, vineyards very carefully. But these little foxes were able to get under things and through little holes in, in the wall. And it's those little foxes that would go in and eat and destroy the vineyards. And so the foxes, they would give birth to their young in the springtime, hence the little foxes. Like he says in verse 15, take us the foxes, the little foxes. And they get into the vineyard, they spoil the vines. And so I think what he's saying here, because he's speaking in word pictures, I think what he's saying is he wants to remove the little things that spoil the relationship. And that is critical. Little things can spoil a love relationship more than big things. Little things over a period of time can destroy, can erode, can short circuit. Now, you've all heard, heard of the uh, com computer virus, right? They call it a virus. And uh, before they had viruses, I remember back in the 90s when I first heard of a computer virus and I thought it was a hoax. I thought it was a joke. I thought someone was trying to pull our leg till I realized, no, it's true. But before that, they talked about computer bugs, a bug, something that caused a problem in the computer. Well, that actually goes back to a literal bug. I think it was a moth 
uh, one of these great big IBM things that take up floors and rooms and everything, th these old, old things. And they had a problem with it. It was not working. They brought in the technicians, and they're tracing the problem all the way back. And they found that a moth had uh, jumped across two terminals and short-circuited. And so that's where the term computer bug came from. And in a love relationship, it's those little things that will eat away. And it's the little things that'll get under the skin. And I think what Solomon is saying, and it's very wise, is uh, let's get those little foxes out of the vineyards. The little things that destroy the love relationship. And I believe there are many things, many little things that can spoil love between a husband and wife. They say that you only really get to know someone after you marry them and live with them, right? Because up to that point, everyone's on their best behavior. You know, he's on his best and she's on her best. And then after they get married, then they, uh, they, they get to know each other. There's some joke about on a honeymoon and they, um, they get to their, uh, their paradise hotel with the honeymoon suite and he changes into his pajamas and he looks at her, and uh, she reaches up and takes off this wig. And she's just about bald. And then she takes out a false eye. She takes off false eyelashes. She takes off her false fingernails. She takes out false teeth. <laughs> and then she reaches down and takes off a false leg. And he's telling her, stop, stop. <laughs> there won't be anything left. <laughs> so just a little bit of humor there. But um, there are a lot of little things that can uh, spoil a love relationship, and they got to be gotten rid of. Now, we got to finish up here. So the conversation now goes back to uh, Solomon's bride, and uh, we're on point number four here. Uh, so this will be God's people, Israel, now speaking uh, to God. In verse 16, uh, she says, "'My beloved is mine, and I am his.'" He feedeth among the lilies. Now, it, it could well be late in the day uh, when they're talking, as we'll see in a moment. But the bride expresses the joy and fulfillment of their exclusive love for each other. It's something precious and wonderful. And so to say, my beloved is mine and I am his. And truly, when we say that about the Lord Jesus... He loved us that so much that he left heaven's splendor and came to become one of us and then died for us and rose again for us. And he's praying for us. He's given us all things, the church, the Holy Spirit, the Bible, all these things. He's coming for us. We can truly say th the same. My beloved is mine and I am his. And then in verse 17, and this is why I suggest it could be late in the day, because the bride seems to bid Solomon to safety. So until the day break and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, and be thou like a roe or a young heart upon the mountains of Bether. Uh, and so she seems to bid Solomon to the safety of the mountains until the morning. Now it says here, uh, the mountains of Bether. And uh, let's see if I can point out where scholars think it might be. This is the Jabbok River here. Here's the Jordan. 
And they're figuring that it could be somewhere in that area there. You say, why did she uh, want him to? Uh, I don't know. And neither do any of the other commentators. <laughs> Everyone's got their speculation and their ideas and so on. But the truth is, we don't know. Conclusion. Let's wrap this up tonight. These two people, Solomon and his bride, are rejoicing in their love for each other. And if we take it the next logical step, the love that God has for his people and his people have for God is something to rejoice about. But I want you to notice two verses. First, I'd like you to go back here to verse 14. Look at verse, verse 14. He says, Let me hear thy voice, for sweet is thy voice. Did you know that God wants to hear your voice? Did you know that? And every day when you miss your prayer closet, you short-circuit the whole thing. Unless you spend time with your beloved, that he can hear your voice, uh, it ain't going to work. You have to, you have to spend time with your beloved. He longs to hear your voice. And your voice to him is so special and precious. And you might think there's nothing special about your voice. Well, he, do, he does. He thinks your voice is very precious. And he loves to hear the sound of your voice. He does, he does, he does. Now, you might want to compare it possibly to um, uh, some of the little children. When the little children speak, it's in that voice that's so sweet and so cute and the way they frame their words and the things they say, it gives us such joy. And we just love them so much and we want to be around them. Well, in a, a possible similar manner, God loves to hear our voice. Not because we're, you know, too cute, you know, for our own good or anything like that, but just the fact that he loves us and he loves to hear our voice. So we need to be using our voice in the prayer closet. We need to be talking to God every day, every day. Don't be afraid to talk 5, 10, 15 minutes to him, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, 30 minutes. Don't be afraid to use your voice in extended periods of time. And then throughout the day, you know, uh, Lord, what do you think of this? Lord, I need wisdom. Lord, protect me. See? And he loves to hear our voice. And the second thing I want you to see, it's in verse 15, and it's the little things. It's those little foxes. And they can spoil the relationship. And in the application here is that we need to get these little spoilers out of our lives. Um, oftentimes, Christians fall into this trap of thinking and they think, well, I haven't robbed any banks. That's good. I haven't committed any murders. That's a good one. I like that. I haven't sold out my country. I haven't gone into prostitution or anything. And so whew, I guess I'm doing all right. <laughs> well, praise the Lord, we haven't gone into prostitution or bank robbery or, you know, any of those wicked things. But sin is way, way more than just bank robbery and murder. Uh, sin really gets down to a lot of grime and rubble, a lot of little grit and sand, 
Uh, and we need to get rid of that stuff because it's the little sins that spoil the relationship. And it could be sins, bad habits, bad words that we use. It could be bad thoughts. It could be some, some bad places we go, maybe on internet or in books or magazines. Um, we really, really need to get rid of the little things. If you find there are little things in your life that you have trouble getting rid of, you know what? I have no trouble getting rid of murder out of my life. Did you know that? I have no trouble whatsoever getting rid of all, you know, sticks of dynamite where I could blow myself up and take others with me. I have no problem whatsoever. I have no problem not robbing banks. I can go into any bank and I don't even feel tempted to rob it. I have no problem getting rid of those things. But it's the little foxes. Those little things that we say, oh, well, I'm only human. Oh, well, everyone does it. Oh, well, this. Oh, well, that. That's what kills our closeness. That's what will kill intimacy between a husband and wife. And that's what will kill intimacy between a Christian and his beloved or her beloved. And so we need to really do a house cleaning and keep the house clean. Because I don't know about your house, but in my house, it always seems to need a vacuum. It always seems to need to get out the dust mop or something. It always seems to need a little this and a little of that. And I, I think your house is the same. And our hearts are the same. And we always need to be cleansed daily, daily, daily. Because it's those little things that'll kill our relationship with our loving Savior. Let's go to prayer.